Guess what? We're going to hear all about the Jeffrey Epstein story at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> Welcome back to the Teresa for Governor Show. What? Please write me in if you, for Arizona Mine Inspector, State Mine Inspector, if you're an Arizona voter, and... So good afternoon and welcome everybody to this afternoon's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Robert Rosenthal and I'm a board member and longtime journalist and I'm now a board member of the Center for Investigative Reporting. Uh, earlier in my career I did work in Philadelphia and we were not in the same newspaper but uh, we certainly just reminisced about some places we loved in Philly, uh, including cheesecake. Uh, without Julie's really heroic uh, journalistic efforts at the Miami Herald, we may never have known what we know today about Jeffrey Epstein. And while, of course, much remains a mystery about Epstein, we know more about his victims and the failure of the judicial system than we ever did because of reported. Uh, based on a reporting, Julie's new book is published this week, The Version of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein Story. And it's, uh, it reads, uh, I'm sorry to say, it's not fiction, but it's true. It reads like a, a novel, and it's not only a story uh, about what it really takes to be to great investigative story reporting. It's a story about passion, taking risks, the challenges a single mom faced doing this kind of work, uh, a story about what's happened to the, the newspaper industry in terms of its downsizing. And really it's a story about the role of the press in a democracy. And when people like Julie and the Miami Herald did what they did, it truly makes a difference. As, before we start, I just want to frame what we're going to do today. And I know you've had a lot of interviews, so give you a few minutes to say. But I wanted to read from the preface in your book, because it sort of frames what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I thought it was just set up what we're doing. And this is, Julie wrote this in the preface. Uh, this was only written a few months ago. This book, as I said, came out this week. This is what Julie wrote. The Je Jeffrey Epstein story epitomizes our nation's lopsided system of justice and how victims of sexual assault, especially those who are young and poor, are discarded, shamed, and mistreated by the very people who are supposed to protect them. Epstein got away with his crime because nearly every element of society allowed him to get away with them. Professional, legal, and moral ethics were set aside for a broken system of values that places corporate profits, personal wealth, political connections, and celebrity above some of the most sacred tenets of our faiths, our teachings, and our democracy. When I became a journalist, I learned that the most rewarding part of my work was in writing injustices for those who could not fight for themselves. Few people seem to recognize that Epstein not only beat the system, but he's probably still hunting, terrorizing, and abusing young women and girls. I would face many obstacles in my path to the truth. I would be attacked by the legal forces who failed this Alamos, by the defense attorneys who profited off of Epstein's crimes, by some of those within my own industry who thought that what I was doing was nothing more than a rehash of an old story. So, Julie, uh, You've been in this business a while, and uh, like every great story, it has a beginning. Can you take us to the point where you first really got hooked 
into doing the story and also about some of the events that already had transpired that you may or may not have been aware of? Well, in late 2016, we were, um, I was in the middle of a long-term investigation into Florida prisons, uh, but it, it was winding down and I really wanted to, to try to move on to something different. So I, you know, I had done some work in the women's prison and I knew that sex trafficking was a real problem in Florida. So I started doing some research on sex trafficking in Florida, and every time I Googled those two subjects, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's name popped up. I read a column by one of our former columnists, Fred Grimm, um, that really took the criminal justice system and the prosecutors in this case to task for how they handled it. Nothing that I read seemed to make sense of it. It, it, it just, here was a man who was accused of molesting countless girls and uh, you know he seemed to get away with a slap on the wrist. wrist. So I just started kind of picking away at it and looking at it and as I was doing that um, requesting some public records uh, Donald Trump nominated a man by the name of Alex Acosta to be his labor, labor secretary. Uh, I was aware that by that time I was aware that Acosta was the prosecutor, former Miami prosecutor, who had signed off on this um, this you know lenient plea deal for Epstein. So I watched his confirmation hearing, thinking he was going to be grilled over this deal, and to my um, surprise, hardly any of the senators really brought much of it up, and it was clear from the little bit that they did question him about it, that they didn't understand the scope or the breadth of this horrible um, this horrible deal that Acosta had signed up on. So, frame it a little bit, because now you're talking about a period of uh, eight years after the deal, is that right? So this That's is, correct. So it was, this it had lain dormant for eight years, and then you start poking at it again. Yeah, because it was one of those things where I would read a story and I'd think, what? How did this happen? And none of the stories that I read answered how something like that could happen. So I was curious about that fact. And then when this nomination happened, I thought, I wonder what the victims, you know, I would, it, this was a crime that happened 10 years before. This would mean that the victims were now in their late 20s, early 30s. And, uh, you know, the labor secretary of post was one with oversight of human trafficking and child labor laws. And I thought, I wonder what Epstein's victims think about um, this man who had allowed their predators that's essentially almost off the hook, now taking over the reins of this huge um, department. So really, the hook for you is empathy and compassion is thinking about these young women and how they might be sitting there thinking about what was going on if they're aware of what Acosta has done in terms of cutting the plea deal with, with, and letting Epstein basically almost walk. Right. And then I also saw that Epstein, you know, even though his crime, he had already served the short jail sentence that he had been given many, many years before having been released in 2009. He went back to his death-setting life. It was almost, I realized it was almost as if he got to go back to his normal, everyday life 
um, making money and, and hobnobbing with all these important people. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I bet the girls, you know, who suffered this aren't living the same lives that they had led. And it, 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 in my mind, I'm thinking, I, you know, I, I felt a gut instinct that they were still probably suffering trauma from this. At this point, from the from the court filings and documents that you were looking at, is, is, had you begun actually, you know, human sourcing yet, or you just were looking and reading what you was on the record? I was just at that point just looking and reading the documents because it was a very old case, and I was looking for a hook, quite frankly, if I wanted to do it. You know, you always have to tell, give your pitch it to your editor, and you have to have you know, some kind of reason for, for looking into a case that's that old. And it was just coincidental that Acasa was nominated right around the time I was poking at it, number one. And, and it, um, you know, I, I also saw that there was one lawsuit, a civil lawsuit, that was still lingering. I wondered why it was hanging on after all these years. And did you, at that point, know the name of any of these young women, or were they all Jane Doe's? In the, in the filing. They were all Jane Doe's. So take us through, okay, so you're, you've got this, your gut, you're tingling, there's something wrong here, you have a book in this, you know, a U.S. attorney who would basically let this guy off, and in the documents you were looking at, I believe there were dozens of young women who would allege that they had been, uh, or that the detectives had found were going to testify that they had been sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein and many of the minors, is that right? That's right. So you had dozens of cases. It wasn't one or two or three or four. And I believe the documents hinted that there were many more. That's right. It, it seemed um, there was information in the FBI. The little bit of FBI information that we had was that these the FBI agents were investigating it were interested in traveling to New York and New Mexico, which were two other places where Epstein owned homes. And it, while it didn't say why, it was clear to me that they were probably trying to find out whether he had been abusing girls in these other mm -hmm. places. So you have a situation where some of the people in law, law enforcement, probably you're wondering were they coerced or went along with this, and probably others from your experience you know might have been outraged. What steps then you, do you then take to begin finding the human the sources who could be? Who did you, who did you then go look for? Well, I, I reached out to, first of all, I, one of the other things I noticed about it was that the, uh, you know, as a police reporter, most of my career was spent being a police reporter, crime reporter. So the first thing I thought, well, the police, you know, who handled, who was the lead detective 10 years ago? Who was the police chief? And in doing my research, I learned that the lead detective of the case, Jeffrey Carey, had retired, and so had the police chief, Mike Ryder. And uh, yet, they had never spoken publicly at all about the case. The only public uh, information we had were two depositions that they had given many, many years earlier, um, I think in like 2010. Um, so these were even dated uh, interviews and they were court depositions, which as you probably know, are pretty boring documents. Um, and uh, I, I set out really first to try to get them to go on the record. So this, I, I'm, I hope this conversation isn't too inside the new thing, because what I'm really trying to throw out here is that one reporter one person 
He's got instincts and passion and guts uh, and a very strong will can truly make a difference. And it applies to many things in life. So you have, you then go, you have a couple of names. They've never spoken on the record outside whatever they in a, in a document. And how do you go about finding them and then convincing them based on probably their own cynicism about no one's going to do anything about this? What's the process and how long did that take? Well, that process took a lot longer than I expected. Um, you know, I think my editor was getting a little antsy because it was taking so long. I was trying to explain, look, these victims' names aren't in any of the documents. It's just going to be a, a painstaking process to go through all the documents. And basically what I did was started reading everything and, you know, uh, doing this, as I said, so many years, it's inevitable that they miss a name, <laughs> you know, or they have the first name and not the last name, or they have the first name and then the date of birth. So it was this big puzzle, and I did a spreadsheet, and I would put what information I had on each victim. You know, it would only be scraps of information. And from those scraps of information, um, I looked at some of the, uh, a lot of these women have sued Epstein in the years since this happened. Um, of course, they were all listed as Jane Doe's, but I would have to read each of those uh, lawsuits in order to get it. I had a file for Jane Doe 1, Jane Doe 2, Jane Doe all the way up to 120 something. And uh, so I would just keep doing these files and I used social media, you know, a lot of these uh, women. For example, if I found one woman on Facebook, uh, let's just say she was, um, you know, Jan Smith, I could look at her friends on Facebook. And, you know, it's really kind of creepy at times because I've seen a certain kind of type. He likes very um, petite, um, blonde hair, blue-eyed. I mean, they, they look very similar. Um, so I would just basically look at their friends who all look, you know, that look like that. And slowly I began to piece together. Uh, I had a, you know, I just, the list just grew. And by now you know that in the initial go around uh, in 2005-6-7 when Epstein was dealing with this and basically got off very lean and He brought in lawyers like Kennedy for a while to get right? I mean, what did that mean, signal to you also? Well, it signaled to me that I better let our executive editor know what I was doing. So I, I, you know, knocked on Cindy um, Marquez, um, was our executive editor at the time, and, um, you know, I said, look, uh, you have a second, I want to tell you what I'm working on. And so we just talked about the case, and I told them this is, this is going, might be a rough one because we're going up some very powerful people, and he has uh, a legal arsenal that, you know, that potentially mm -hmm. would threaten to sue us. And but I told her the story and I told her about the, the women and he ultimately said go for it. And you would, and it, so this is around what point? Two thousand seventeen? Yeah. Really? yeah. And so you you basically go through months and months of reading documents, trying to figure out how to find these things, uh, getting sources, the party, Ritter, the the former law enforcement district chief. And this is in Palm Beach again. Uh, to try and speak to you. And that's months of work, is that right? 
Yeah, it, it, tracking down women was the most time consuming and, and trying to get them to talk was right. the most time consuming part of it. So let me, let me ask you a question because, you know, in the book, you, you weave in uh, something that I found really interesting and surprising uh, your own story. You know, as your family comes in, your single mom, you come up with second, you know, characters. Uh, and you also talk about your own upbringing. Did, did you, were you conscious of the fact that there was something in there that, did you ever think, I could have been one of these girls? You know, I didn't, I wasn't conscious of it when I started the project at all. I didn't become conscious of it until I started interviewing women. And especially, uh, you know, I interviewed a couple of their moms. And the stories that their moms told me reminded me, you know, my own mother, you know, in the struggle she had as a single mom. And, you know, quite frankly, I, you know, I had a tough growing up and I had put it out of my head. It was sort of like a, a reckoning of my own without me really planning on it that way that I just started thinking about, wow, I remember when my mom had to, you know, work two jobs, she was a waitress part-time, and she wasn't home a whole lot, and, you know, we were left, we were left two kids, you know, and, you know, you know, as I said, it, it slowly dawned on me that I had a lot in common with these women, but I didn't see the story for that reason, I just, you know, it just, it just kind of happened that way. Well, you know, some of the best journalists have tremendous compassion, and, and, and there are victims in any situation. You want to be able to tell their story and hopefully make it relevant so other people can understand what they went through. And that really came through. Julie, take us through, uh, I mean, the, the, the reporting here, and it's hard to explain, I think, to a non-journalist audience, because, you know, I don't know how many thousands of pages of documents you read, trying to track people down. Uh, I know one of the heroines in the story is the librarian. I think her name is... Uh, yeah. Yeah, Monica. Yeah, she. Monica Leal. Yeah, I I felt that I feel still feel that uh, librarians don't get a lot of credit in our business, and they're very important uh, to what we do. Um, the other real heroine also was my uh, partner Emily Michaud, who was my videographer and photographer, who uh, worked on this project from with me from the get go, and was a real uh, important. Uh, you know, it's important to um, to hear this story. Uh, we were, we put together the documentaries as well as to see the story as much as it is to read the story. Uh, she made these women very um, three dimensional and and very um, you know it, it, no one could tell the story really better than the women right. themselves. And these documentaries did that. Well, and I think I want to get to that sort of the interview process, but. Was there a point in this early reporting where you suddenly felt outraged? Uh, pretty much from the beginning, you know, I, I just couldn't, I, I was outraged from the very beginning. I just couldn't understand how someone like that could have gotten away with it. Uh, and that's what made me want to do it because I, I, to be honest with you, I felt like it was like an unsolved crime that I had to solve. And I thought, I knew a lot had been written about it. But as I said, I don't think the answers were really known. So I set out to really solve this mystery. And you knew, I think, that you had to go to many of these young women now a little older on the record to tell their story. So can you take, can you take us, yeah, can you, can you take us through 
how you found the first couple of women and, and what you know what, what you had to do to get them to front. I think, again, one of the most difficult things a reporter or journalist has to do is uh, speak to people who've lost something, victims of something, in this case, uh, sexual abuse or rape. It's, it's really difficult to win the trust and, and the sensitivity you need to do that. But you just take it through, through the process and, and at some of the first meetings. Well, I, before I even met with them, I I had it instantly. I knew that this was going to be an issue where I was going to be asking these women, whom I had never met before, about the worst time of their life. And I knew that some of them had probably never told anybody that this had happened. They were very young. And I was concerned that I was going to perhaps re-traumatize them. So I, you know, I spoke with some people who do these uh, kinds of interviews for a living uh, to get some insight into how to handle it. And one of the things that I concluded was that I didn't need to force them to talk about the abuse, you know, the physical abuse. That it was more important that I, that I, you know, tell them, look, you don't have to talk about this. There's no question that this happened. You know, Epstein never denied that he did any of this. That was the other thing. He never denied he did it. He once compared what he did to uh, stealing a bagel, you know. He just didn't think what he did, that he did anything wrong. So there was never a question that, that this had happened. So I didn't need for them to tell me about the rape. Um, I just needed them to talk about what it had done to them and how they, you know, were treated by the criminal justice system. Well, first of all, the one thing that I did, I, I started thinking this would be like any other story. You go knock on the door and um, tell the person that you want to interview what you want to talk to them about. And then I, I you know, when I did that, one of the women's fathers answered the door and I thought, I know not, this isn't going to work because I can tell her father Uh, 
you know, Emily and I really, I think, didn't really understand the depth of the trauma that, that she and, and other women had gone through. She only went to Epstein one time, by the way. And it just with that one time, it, it really almost destroyed her life. And to hear her tell, and that's one of the powerful parts of the book. I mean, I touched upon that and Emily, of course, did a brilliant job of it in the, in the documentary, but you only get so many you know, minutes in a documentary and so many inches in a story. So in the book, I was able to really talk about that whole interview and, you know, and, and with each of these women, their whole story, because it's important to understand that, um, yes, these girls took money, but they were really, um, misled uh and they were really um you know yeah, why, why don't you uh, go into the detail of what the method was i mean i i, I don't want to assume everybody understands what was happening here how how this his system basically worked and how there was it wasn't just jeffrey epstein there was a whole infrastructure around him and many many people were aware of what were going on can you just, just get, describe that for us what was actually the methodology yeah, <clears throat> Jeff Epstein had a whole ecosystem around him of people that helped him. I mean, he was a guy that really didn't even tie his own shoelaces. He had, uh, you know, he had somebody to do everything for him. And so these people uh, that were part of his, uh, you know, his 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 life, you know, or this this system that he had built, uh, were you know involved everyone from the butler who answered the door with where these girls were to a chef who was in the kitchen who, you know, made them snacks to the women. Of course, uh, he had other young women who arranged his schedule to the, um, you know, the, the, the housekeepers who cleaned up after, you know, he did these incidents and uh, the pilots who flew uh, the jets, you know, where he had two private planes, uh, the driver, he had a, he had drivers, you know, that, that picked up the girls. So it was a whole ecosystem around him of people that, um, that, that really aided um, and helped this move. Well, also, know. I think the book, in the book, you really describe how, in some cases, you, the actual the first meeting where somebody, a young girl, she might be a runaway, she might be in distress, she's somewhere, she needs help. You had, it was almost as if you had, you know, a wounded animal or, you know, I don't mean that, but just somebody and people out looking for the girls who fit a physical description that he, he sought after. I mean, they were out right. hunting, really. That was by design. I mean, he could have had the most sophisticated, expensive prostitutes that his money could buy, but that's not what he wanted. <laughs> he wanted scared little girls that was you know what he wanted and he didn't even want them um one one or two he wanted a revolving door of them all the time you know that was part of his sickness and uh so he like i said he he just had and then you know the the most insidious thing part of this of all was when these girls of course became like you know, scared and they didn't want to do it. He said, Oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to do it. Just bring me your friends and I'll pay you the same amount of money. So he had the girls that he victimized didn't want to be victimized anymore, but they needed the money for whatever reason they were, they, they were on the street or they were in a foster home. Um, and 
they just would bring go to parties and bring their friends or bring not even people that were their friends, people that they would meet, acquaintances that they met in the mall, you know, or uh, at the gym or wherever. So he had, uh, you know, he had a whole legion of, of recruiters. Yeah, and, and we're not even really getting into the, uh, the men, and in some cases the women who surrounded him, some of the most best-known people, politicians, businessmen, uh, you know, corporate leaders uh, who were part of this world in some way. And I guess that's still one of the un, unclear mysteries. Uh, can, you know, there's so much to go to here. Uh, you know, and, and I, I want to sort of try and keep it in a little bit of chronology. But can you also, you know, one of the things that also is quite revelatory in the book is your exploration of the two islands in the Virgin Islands. Can you talk about that and, and sort of what was going on there and how that was part of this world of, of Jeffrey Epstein and his friends? And what also his method of indebting himself to local officials and government people, either through philanthropy or donations or building something, uh, this sort of almost 360-degree system he created? Right. Well, he couldn't have picked a better place um, to you know, further his crimes than this island that he bought off the coast of St. Thomas. Uh, the only way you can get to it is uh, by helicopter or by boat. Um, and he, he, you know, it's also a place where the people on St. Thomas are pretty poor. Um, and um, the politicians, um, you know, he ingratiated himself with the, with the government officials and the politicians. Uh, the wife of the then governor went to work for Epstein. I think she worked for him for like, for many years, like 10 years. Uh, so he, and then he uh, donated, you know, tens of thousands, maybe even, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, build schools there, uh, you know, donated, built, you know, the first mu music school, uh, soccer programs. I mean, you just name it. It was just anything that he could throw his money at. So um, inevitably, you know, uh, these people came to, you know, know him as somebody as somewhat of a benefactor and they, you know, turned their I, you know, turn their heads the other way when he was bringing in all these girls on his on his private plane. He would fly into the airport at St. Thomas on his private plane and then go to a hangar, you know, an area that wasn't real completely visible to everyone. Um, it, disembark with the girls and then they would usually hop on a helicopter that was kept there and then they they would be flown to the island and, and one of the things you that you were i think still looking for and maybe still looking for are manifest that right who flew on these flights and there's also who flew around and you've been unable to get a lot of those right in other words who he was flying with and homeland security has blocked that is that still true yeah, because unfortunately, when I started doing this, this was after my series ran and I was trying to get information on that. And I first did the public records request before Epstein's arrest. I did get some of it, uh, but it was heavily redacted. And before I could pressure and get anything more about it, he was arrested. And then, of course, uh, then it was an open criminal investigation and I wasn't going to get anything. Um, I'm told I need to just move my light a little closer here. It, it's getting dark here in Florida, and and it, so let me just move my light. Excuse me. 
better. <laughs> okay, how's that? A little bit better anyway. <laughs> well, you look good to me. <laughs> so, I mean, I can see you. But so, I mean, so since the, uh, is that because of his death, though, is, any, is that stuff now sealed or can you, can anyone get at it? I don't want to. I don't, any I don't think they're going to give us anything on that. Um, you know, I, cause I, I know it, he's, he's gone now, but the case is still open. And theoretically, I guess they're still looking at other people besides even uh, Elon Maxwell, who, who is indicted mm -hmm. in connection with uh, his, his sex trafficking operation. You know, one of the things, the switch direction a little bit, Julie, in the book, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, what was your thinking as a reporter? I mean, a lot of times in traditional journalism, you sort of, I'll call it behind the curtain. You know, you don't get into your life, the ups and downs, challenges of being a single mom. Was that a decision you wanted to make? Was that your editor, your book editor? Can you get into because your, your children, as I said earlier, there were some wonderful scenes there as a parent, you know. Uh, 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 why, why did you do that? Well, my editor, um, I, you know, it was partially my editor thought that, that this story, um, and I, I fought it, actually. I didn't want to do that initially i said look i would do this I, I really don't i don't want to be in the story you know and then as i was working on it i you know this was around the time of you know trump um and all the things that he was tweeting out that weren't true and uh the the journalists being painted as which the enemy time was the that people. and what uh you know after this series ran i was uh, one of the biggest surprises to me was how much um, fan mail, quite frankly, that I got. You know, journalists never get fan mail, uh, but just a lot of, um, uh, you know, thank you notes from people saying, you know, finally, this is what journalism is and, and this is why it's important. And it occurred to me that, you know, journalists aren't always very good at telling people what we do and how we go about it. We just do it. And I do think that at this time in history, that it's important that we explain to people what we do because, uh, for, you know, because of Trump and because of all the things that have happened, I think uh, a good deal of America has become distrustful of journalists. And so I, I thought maybe I should tell them what I did so they understand this isn't, you know, this isn't an effort to um you know to cover anything up this is an effort to find the truth and that's i think what most journalists do you know and and so i thought i'm going to put a little bit of this in here because i just i think it's part it's important for our country and especially given the fact that newspapers you know small newspapers all over this country are disappearing you know and i don't think the public realizes how um, devastating that is to our democracy that we're losing small newspapers all over the country. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I agree. Uh, and your work certainly shows the difference you can make. Uh, the, you know, one of the, and it's, it's really complicated to get into, I mean, the perversion of justice, you know, I, is, I think a perfect title because once you get into this and you see all the things that happen, and it's probably pretty complicated to explain it here in terms of the system and the players you talk about and some of the stuff you had access to and explaining 
decisions that were made to protect Jeffrey Epstein, and also one of the things we haven't talked about was the ferocity of his attorneys going after the victims. Yeah. And which is appalling when you read about it. And I don't, can you talk a little bit about that and that, what that did to some of these young women in addition to the initial trauma? Well, just imagine you're 14 years old and you did something horrible that you are very ashamed of and the police find out about it and they come and they knock on your door and they you want to talk to you. And of course, you got to explain to your parents why the police are t uh, talking to you and you have to confess, look, I went to this guy's house. I, I thought I was just giving him a massage and here's what happened. And then when that after that happens, the next thing you know, you have, um, you know, a man that you don't even know um, just either following you or or knocking or coming into the little you know bagel shop where you work and and coming and your boss is standing there and, and it's official looking man and he said we need to talk to you and then it turns out it's a private investigator that's working for Jeffrey Epstein and they want to sit down with you and then they tell you look if you uh, Basically, they tell you, if you work with us, you'll be fine. And if you don't work with us, then uh, you're not going to be fine. And your family might not be fine. Or, or your father is followed and he, he, there's headlights in his rearview mirror and he, you know, they run him off the road. I mean, this, this was really happening with these victims. And the fact that prosecutors knew that it was happening and they didn't do anything to stop it. Uh, is is just um, I don't even know what the words were for it. I was just so uh, shocked. Have any of those people been held to account? I know several lost their jobs after your stories came out, but in the after the initial go around, really nothing happened to anybody. No, no. I, you know what? The only people um, really who have paid a price in this whole thing are women. Uh, from the victims to, um, you know, even the prosecutors uh, the pro and the prosecutors that advocated for them, this, both the state lead state prosecutor and the federal prosecutor mm -hmm. were women. Right. Um, but, um, you know, the cases went nowhere because their bosses, who happened to all be men, um, sort of, you know, excused what he did and said, look, these victims aren't credible. Uh, they're prostitutes, uh, you know, um, it wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, there were all these excuses that were made. Yeah. Can you, uh, getting more maybe, in, talk about, um, in, in every story, there's also an editor who sometimes is behind the curtain. Uh, you, uh, you, your interactions with Casey Frank are quite candid, <laughs> and your thoughts about editors are pretty candid. I didn't take any umbrage. Uh, but talk about Casey Frank and the relationship you had and how that either helped or hindered or, you know, the whole back and forth. Well, you know, it's, it's, you know, journalism, it, it can be very messy. And especially when you have two headstrong people, I'm very headstrong. And, you know, I'm quite candid about myself as well. I said, you know, that I'm a hard person to deal with myself. Uh, you know, I, um, I wasn't always, you know, I was an editor at one point. <laughs> not long because I wasn't very good at it. And uh, I, I was tough, you know, to, to some reporters and I regret it. Um, 
And so it, it is this, this dynamic where you're sometimes, you know, at, you know, at cross purposes and, uh, Casey's been my editor for, for probably the whole, almost the entire time, uh, 13 years I've been at the Herald. Uh, we are almost always on the same page with the kind of stories that we think are important, but sometimes the way that you know, I want to go about it isn't the way that he thinks I should go about it. So, and I, as I said, I'm pretty stubborn and headstrong and so is he sometimes. So we clashed and, um, I was honest about that. And, um, I don't know. I just, I, I, you know, in the end, um, in my acknowledgments, I said, however, you know, he, we would have never had some of the stories that we had if that didn't happen. That The same thing that made us clash, I think were the, was the very thing that made our stories um, so important. And so, um, you know, I mean, we just covered all the bases because we had to. We had to come together in the end for the sake of the story. Were you able to share your, your fears, I mean, literal fears that you and Emily had during this process? And what did he do to either assuage them or help you? What, what kind of, did you set up a system in case strange things happened or the knock at the door, that type of thing? Well, you know, it's funny. Fear. I had some, you know, I had some weird things happen with the prison stories that I had done. I remember calling Casey uh, one time, you know, after someone had showed up in my apartment in the middle of the night. I was pretty scared during the prison series. The Epstein series, I don't know, for whatever reason, I didn't, it, I, it didn't really spook me until after, well after, well after the series ran and I was deep into it. So I didn't really have a reason to talk to him about that. Uh, Emily, however, uh, was a lot different than I am. She she was a lot more um, paying attention to, to what was going on. I was a little bit more busy about the story. We're two different personalities that way, so we're a good balance with each other. But she would be like, are you crazy? Why would you do that, you know? So, and the book goes into a couple of those anecdotes about Emily and I with her throwing the furniture in front of the hotel room door and me just falling asleep because I'm thinking, whatever, Emily. Uh, I, you know, like I said, it wasn't until after, you know, we knew that it was really serious that, the, that, that now Epstein was going to be arrested or, you know, the, the Congress had asked for a, a Justice Department investigation, that's when weird things started happening. You know, people showing up, uh, van parked in front of Emily's house, around the clock, people um, showing up outside my apartment, which is not an easy place to, to, you know, it's not a place that people would be walking by. You have to go in an elevator and come up and, you know, it, it was just odd things. Look, uh, I firmly believe that um, there were people that were investigating Emily and I. It, it just, they had to because uh, the case had just gotten so hot and Epstein from the beginning after the series ran was afraid that he was going to be charged. I just know that because some people around mm -hmm. him told me he was worried he was going to be charged. Mm -hmm. you explain Bruce Springsteen's role in your work? <laughs> uh, um, you know, just whenever I have a lot of anxiety, I just, I always turn him on and uh, just listen to him. He's, you know, after a long day writing and, uh, you know, I, I grew up, as you, you know, we mentioned earlier in Philadelphia and I spent my summers at the Jersey Shore and it just, you know, he's a great storyteller, you know, he's brilliant and 
I think his stories just helped make me, um, it comforted me in some way. And so, especially when I was writing the book, I was listening, I, I would, after a long day of writing, I just would turn on um, Sirius Radio and, and just play him the whole entire night to the point that my kids were like rolling their eyes, like, please, mom, do we have to really listen to Bruce Springsteen again? You know, kind of thing. So it was, it was kind of part of the, you know, the fabric of my life when this story was unfolding. And, you know, it's a very dark story. It's a very, um, you know, people said, how did, how did you do this? This is really like a, uh, you know, you could really get depressed doing this. And I think just it was something that helped keep me going, kind of. Yeah, it is a dark story. I'm going to get back to darkness now. Uh, near the end of the book, one of the chapters is, did Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. Uh, so that's a statement. And I, so can you explain and take us through either the process of using that headline or that title chapter, chapter title, or... Is that something you believe? I, this is what I think. I, I used it sort of because that's what everybody was. It was sort of a thing that was all over, um, you know, social media and everywhere. I mean, in our culture, you know, you turn on TV, it was there in the Mardi Gras parade. My son went to Mardi Gras and they had a float of Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein did not commit suicide. It became this, I don't know, this mantra. And you know, I did look at this and people would always ask me when I was doing uh, was doing a lot of college talks at this time, journalism classes, and people would ask me. And, you know, I had to be honest with myself. I, I really didn't think he had he was capable of of committing suicide by himself. Now, could he have um, could it have been assisted suicide? Yes. Um, I, I think if we want to think that that he wanted to end it. I think someone must have helped him. I just don't think he was capable. I mean, and I'm not the only one that thinks this. His brother thinks that. His lawyers think that. Uh, the forensic pathologist that was at the autopsy doesn't believe that he killed himself. Um, you know, there are just too many strange things that happen. I mean, uh, he had three bones broken in his neck. And Dr. Michael Bodden, the forensic pathologist at the autopsy, said you rarely in in that kind of a uh, hanging have three bones broken in your neck. Keep in mind, the theory was that he he um, did this with the bed sheets, um, cutting these uh, up and that he kind of pulled himself against the bunk he tied it to the top bunk and he would have had to pull himself with such I mean there really wasn't according to Baden enough velocity enough room there for him to have done this and broken three bones and you know the toiletries that were on top of his bunk weren't even disturbed so um, and then you have two guards that are asleep at the wheel. Then you have video disappear. Then you find out that, you know, the guy that was in the cell with him was taking that, taken out just hours before this happened. I mean, it's just too, I, you know, I've done crime reporting and especially prison deaths for a long time. And my God just tells me that, that this was not, you know, uh, just a suicide that he did by himself. 
Well, the way you wrote that chapter, certainly all these questions you're raising are laid out in a really coherent way. Now, there is some, there is an inquiry, isn't there? Is, or is that the, the U.S. Attorney's Office is supposed to be doing something? Is New York on, is that yes. happening or is it, do you have any well, idea? New York they is looking at, um, you know, the two corrections officers that were on duty um, already struck a plea deal. So they're quiet. Here we go again with everything that's being sealed and nobody's talking about that part of it. And then uh, there's a separate Justice Department investigation by the Inspector General of the Justice Department that is still ongoing. I don't know why it's taking this long. Uh, so that's still open. So, you know, and a, even if the ruling comes out, whatever that ruling is, I don't know whether the evidence will ever be made public. Yeah, that's a, as you allude to. What, what, let's, you know, jump more to the present now. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, will you be covering her trial? And what do you think will be coming out of that? Well, um, Gilan Maxwell is sort of taking a page out of the Jeffrey Epstein defense playbook in that she's hired some very, a team of very high powered lawyers who have uh, justice, uh, previous experience in the Justice Department. And, uh, you know, they are bombarding the prosecutors with all kinds of paperwork, you know, motions and uh, just anything that they can kind of throw at the wall, hoping that it's going to, um, you know, they're looking for uh, some kind of a loophole. They're, uh, they're, they're going to inevitably argue that she was part of that original, you know, in the original uh, deal that Epstein struck in 2008, there was this strange uh, sort of codicil to the deal where uh, he, uh, his co-conspirators, four of whom were named, they were four women who helped him with the schedule, uh, were given immunity as well, as well as some unnamed people that we still don't know who they were. And that her lawyers will argue that she was one of those people. Now, whether that'll stick uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, Acosta really shows up in this again and again. And, there's, you know, the uh, Justice Department, I mean, one of the details in the book you wrote, uh, did a review and basically found him making uh, guilty of poor judgment but no ethical lapses. And then there's a footnote in that report that says that uh, many of his emails have vanished. Yeah, I mean, they have. They didn't say anybody else's disappeared it's not just his emails it's his emails during the period when this deal was done have vanished so you know i guess it wasn't like they said well he had a major loss of all his emails it was the emails during the period when this deal was negotiated that disappeared yeah so in epstein's will which he wrote a couple of days before he was found dead Right. He, he listed his net worth. I think it what, he's five hundred and seventy eight million. Now, I think you said in the end of the book, and these numbers may have changed, that a victim's compensation fund was created and that I think you said one hundred and seventy five women have filed claims as alleged victims. And so far, sixty seven million has been paid out. So are those women you were aware of or what's the process there? Can you talk about that? Well, we don't really know a lot about them, but I know some of the lawyers <laughs> who represented them. And these are women, some of whom, by the way, um, um, have said that Epstein 
essentially trafficked them out to some of these important men. <clears throat> but they are afraid to come forward. I mean, you look at someone like Alan Dershowitz, who has attacked the woman that was mm -hmm. um, that accused him uh, for years. I mean, he has sued her. He has, <clears throat> I mean, he has made her life really uh, miserable. And I even got, <clears throat> when this was happening, I even got um, emails and <clears throat> a couple of phone calls from some people who knew Alan Dershowitz and said that they would never say anything about what they know because they're were afraid of him, you know, and that's what these women's uh, these attorneys who represent some of these women said that they they're never going to go public because they're too afraid of what the men uh, will put them through. Yeah, you know, when you read the book, the list of men who allegedly were involved here is fairly astonishing, uh, and the denials everywhere, and then also what seems to be some very strong evidence from some of these women, and also the pattern. The pattern is there. It's not like necessarily even one-offs. I mean, you really established patterns here, which you must have seen in the reporting. Yes. Uh, you know, it took a while to put a lot of it together because not all of it was in one place. You know, there were different, um, you know, there was a state investigation, the federal investigation, and the FBI report, <laughs> then the civil lawsuits. And so there were a lot of different pieces. And, and I think that that's another thing, um, another piece of it that I kind of put together in this book, because, you know, when you're, a, when you're doing a piece like this, there's so much information and you can't always put it, everything in the story. So this kind of delves more into some of those details that I couldn't include in the original story. You know, for you, do you, are you, do you feel like you're done with this or there, are you, look, you still want to be engaged? I mean, now you're, I guess you're starting a book tour or at least a virtual book tour. You, I'm sure you're exhausted. Uh, you, know. <laughs> you know, I want to see it through, uh, but I, I'm also mindful, you know, I, I, one of the other things I talk about in this book is how I was on other stories. You know, some people said, well, it must be nice to do that. Nothing else. Well, that's not how it worked. I, I was doing the Parkland uh, shootings. I was doing the shooting at the Fort Lauderdale airport. Um, I was covering other things when this happened. And, you know, we just unfortunately had this horrible tragedy here in Surfside. And, um, you know, when we're, you know, when you work for a paper, you know, a smaller paper, you, you just don't have the luxury of just going off on one thing. I probably have a little bit more of that luxury than other reporters, but, um, you know, you, you really have to, to, to join in on the coverage. You just have to. Yeah, I'll give so, you, for the audience some context, you know, 20 years ago or so, Julie would have been what they called detached just to work on this and had the freedom to do it. But these days, as newsrooms are about probably a fifth of what they were, so sometimes it's all hands in, even on when she's in the middle of a huge and important story like this. So, again, I just think it uh, speaks volumes about, your persistence and your work ethic and your determination uh, to do this. And I, you know, I know what, how difficult that is. And I respect mark. the hell out it's of it. Really um, you know, there's some, here's a question yeah, from the audience. You uh, and you've touched on it a couple of times, but what are some of the questions remaining mysteries, you know, about what Jeff Epstein that you wonder about and that you have any potential hope anything will come out? 
oh my the, god the loose threads time for, for all that i mean uh you know i i i think one of the things um for example is you know, didn't anybody keep track? Here was a guy who, who was a, a convicted sex offender, accused of molesting girls, and he gets out of jail in 2009, and nobody's paying attention to where he's flying his plane and who's on his plane? I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me. Does anybody watch these people when they get out, you know, and make sure that they're not, you know, getting other girls from you know, Eastern Europe and bringing them to our country. It just seemed to me that he wasn't having any problems after he got out of jail. He returned to his regular life and no one was paying any attention to him. So, you know, that's one thing I think should absolutely be looked at. I mean, why weren't they checking his plane when he got off in St. Thomas and asking those girls how old they were? Yeah, that, that's one really jumped out. And I think in the book, you also show that there, there were, in fact, young women or girls brought from overseas uh, to right. New York. And then the who's who, can you, go, can you talk a little bit about the who's who uh, of the mansion in New York? And also one of the details, I think, in one of the hearings to uh, not give him bail when he was still alive was that the assistant U.S. attorney described how in the Manhattan mansion there were, they found hundreds of thousands, not thousands, hundreds of thousands of photographs so of semi-nude, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old girls. Really and right. I don't know what that indicated. And also a trove of diamonds, you know, right. in the safe. I mean, uh, but what, I mean, the New York mansion also, I mean, you, well, we know you write about some of the people who went there, including Bill Gates. And I think, you know, other elected officials, Prince Andrew and, um, you know, um, you know, and the people that flew on his plane, you know, Bill Clinton, um, Trump flew, flew on his plane. Um, you know, all these people were in and out of, uh, you know, his life over this time period when he was involved with this sex trafficking operation. Um, you know, the victims, some of them have accused some of the men of being involved. Um, of course, we, you know, th this is a crime that, you know, doesn't really have any witnesses. You know, when you're in a room with a man doing this to you, what there's really nobody there uh, to corroborate it, except for, of course, Epstein, who's gone now. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk of videos, whether, whether he had videos, um, you know, compromise on some of these men. I mean, we really don't know for sure. I've heard different things from different people. Uh, but, you know, it makes you wonder whether anybody else is really going to be held accountable. Are you still getting tips and leads on this from people out of the blue? Yeah, it's, it, I just got a couple this week because the book is getting some press and I'm hearing from people saying, you know, call me, I, I know this. So I'll call them all and, you know, see if any there's any truth to to you know their tips um usually as you know when you have a story like this you know i would say 80 90 percent of them are are not good good information but you, if you get one or two percent that that make a difference one of the tips that i did get after this series ran was the one about the saint thomas airport um or traffic controller had called me or a friend i should clarify it was a friend of an air traffic controller who told him that this air traffic controller had seen him disembark his plane mm -hmm. with a bunch of girls well talking about sources you you write a chapter there about a couple of really sketch characters uh, patrick kessler and mark dugan 
I mean, yeah. those two. I mean, what what do you make of that? I mean, it was almost like they were planted, or they were just. What do you think? I, I just had to include it because the story is so bizarre. It's almost like if you did a movie about it, you wouldn't believe that these characters actually existed, but they really did. And you know, the New York Times did a whole um, you know story about the Patrick Kessler, which I knew about it as it was unfolding, but. Uh, you know, quite a few people told me that they thought he was a phony. So I just kept thinking, uh, you know, why is the New York Times still pursuing it? Because everything I was hearing anyway. Tell, was tell us a little detail about what that what he was up to. Kessler. Well, he, he claimed that he had video that somehow he had gotten a hold of these uh, long lost Epstein video that he had uh, either helped Epstein. I'm trying to remember the details.